You're listening to the Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Mark chapter 6. This evening we are in a familiar passage, and I hope that tonight the familiarity of this story is not our foe. I think sometimes it's true that we open to a story that we know so well, and because we know it so well, we don't really pay attention. We, we see the story and figure we know what it says, and so we just kind of check out. And my prayer tonight is that we, myself included, won't do that. That we would hear this story once again uh, in a fresh way, and that God will show us something that will be helpful for our lives. I think it's very true to say that the world around us misunderstands who Jesus was, who Jesus is. It's kind of all around us all the time. Anytime you read an article about who Jesus is in the newspaper, it doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, Anytime that you talk to somebody who has just like a very small perspective, they've been to church maybe once or twice, they they don't know who Jesus is. They don't know why he came. I think that everywhere we look, we find people thinking that Jesus was a revolutionary, that he was just a philosopher, that he was a moral teacher, that he had some groundbreaking ideas that are worth exploring, but that he was this this new man who came on the scene with some new ideas. And they don't realize he was the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. They think of him sometimes as, as a crutch for weaker people. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm weak. I need Christ. But I don't think Jesus is a crutch. His call to believers is to pick up their cross and follow him. That's not an easy thing to do, to die to yourself every day, to live lives of obedience and sacrifice. And yet others would still say he's a crutch. Some people think that he's like a genie. You rub him the right way, say the right things, and he's just going to give you what you want. Well, he didn't come to give us what we wanted. In fact, he came to give us what we didn't want, but what we desperately need. That is salvation. We need a Savior. And so the believer learns in our lives to set aside what we want and to not treat Christ as a genie, but instead to try to learn what he wants. And try to change our passions and our desires to line up with him. And so in all these areas, it's expected that the world will get Jesus wrong. The trouble is when the church gets Jesus wrong. And it's all around us. I think that part of the reason this problem plagues North American Christianity is because we're trying to reconcile our desire to be comfortable and to be prosperous and to be successful with a Savior who lived as a pauper and died as a criminal. How do we put these two things together? And the way that most people do it is to say, well, Jesus lived as a pauper and died as a criminal so that I can be rich and successful and healthy. And And it just, it doesn't fit the Bible. And so, We say, Jesus wants me to be happy. He wants to bless me. 
Surely he wouldn't give me all of what I have just so that I could have to give some of it away. And the Bible confronts us with this awful truth. It's not awful, but it's true. Obedience to Christ is costly. And Pastor talked about this, that this morning beautifully in his lesson on discipleship. Obedience to Christ is costly. If you submit your life to Christ, you will expose yourself to a variety of sorrows. Your caring commitment to biblical living will make you vulnerable to things which uncommitted people will never experience. And so in our story tonight, we will see that Jesus teach this lesson to his disciples. And the great news is this. Every circumstance, even the really uncomfortable ones, they're okay when we know Jesus is with us. Mark chapter 6, this story of Jesus walking on water immediately is preceded by the feeding of 5,000. So you kind of get this double header of two unbelievable miracles happening just side by side. 5,000 men plus women and children have just been fed. Jesus is ministering there in a kind of deserted place close to Bethsaida. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 45, we'll begin reading. And straightway, he, Jesus, constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent away the people. So it's interesting to think that Jesus had been teaching these people all day long and all day long they'd been listening and, and waiting for these miracles and finally it gets to the point where it's getting later in the day and everybody has been there all day long, not eaten, and so they're starving. And the disciples say, Jesus, you need to send them away. We need to let them go eat. We need some time. And so, and Jesus' response to that is to feed them. It's an amazing thing. And yet, immediately, after this feeding of the 5,000, rather than saying, hey, that just bought us three more hours, right? We've got some more time. We can teach. We can minister. Immediately, he then sends the people away. And he sends his disciples across the lake. Strange, isn't it? Isn't this an opportunity? Missed? John tells us why this is. In John chapter 6, verse 15, we find when Jesus therefore therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again to a mountain himself alone. So Jesus understood that the thinking that was going on inside these people's heads, they'd been there all day, they'd seen him do some miracles, and now he'd fed them. And they're thinking, this is the guy that I want to be my king. I want the guy that will teach me. I want the guy that will heal me. I want the guy that will feed me. Because that sounds pretty good. And so they don't, they don't comprehend who Jesus really is, right? They represent the world who is kind of clueless to his real purpose and plan. Jesus understands that these people don't just need a king to give them physical food. They need a savior to die for them. And so he sends them away so that he can be their savior. It's almost ironic. And yet he does. Jesus then sets the course for his disciples, and it says, the Bible says that he constrained them. The word is compelled them. It's, it's almost like he, he forced them to. They didn't want to get into the boat by themselves. They wanted to stay maybe with him, but he said, no, guys, you need to go. You need to get in the ship, and I want, I'll meet you there, but you need to get over there. 
And so he puts them on a ship and sends them away. Verse 46. When he had sent them away, he departed to a mountain to pray. So he's got his own plan. Okay? I love this. That Jesus sends away a multitude of people he could have taught and even sends away his 12 disciples. Why? Because he's carving out this time for him to be alone with his father. We did a lesson on prayer in Sunday school uh, well, last week, a couple weeks ago, about uh, Jesus and, and how he prayed. And I think when you go through the Bible, it's actually amazing to see how many times Jesus stops to pray. And part of the reason that's amazing is because there, there are between 34 and 40 unique miracles recorded in the Bible, and there are about 25 unique times where Jesus is seen praying. Now you say, well, that means miracles are more important than prayer. I don't think so. I think that miracles are actually a lot more fascinating than prayer. So if I was writing a history of somebody's life, I don't think I would say too often, they just prayed. Oh, and then they were going to pray. You know, I think that if they were like healing people and bringing people back to life and all these kind of things, I think that's what I'd write about. And so we do see 34 miracles, but we also see 25 times that Jesus stops to pray. Some, an insignificant detail that the gospel writers thought this needs to be included. Why? Because Jesus had a really good prayer life. I wonder what he prayed for on this mountainside. I think we probably have a good idea. He had just seen these people without a shepherd. He's probably praying for them. How about his disciples? He's just sent them away. He's got a plan in mind. We'll see that in a little bit. I think he was probably praying for them, praying that they would learn. Whatever it was, he went to the mountain to pray, and he, he prayed for quite a while. He was there probably for seven or eight, eight hours. Verse 47, when the even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them, and about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. Jesus is now on the land, he's, he's in the mountain, he's praying, and he's watching them toil in rowing. The wind is contrary to them. That's just a really like fancy way of saying, this, there was a storm, right? There was wind blowing in their face. Has anybody ever been in a canoe? I, I'm assuming you haven't been in like a rowboat, but have you been in like a canoe where you're trying to paddle against the wind? Yeah? It sucks. It does. You feel like you're not going anywhere. I, I remember we did this college and career uh, trip that my parents planned to Algonquin Park at our old church. And uh, there was a group of kind of college-age students that went. And we had to get past this very final stre stretch of like kind of a lake. You go from one side to the other. And it felt like, like it, you could see the end for so long. But it felt like days to get there. It was, I think, a couple hours. Um, one of the funny things that happened, actually, on that trip is there was one couple that was engaged, and they wanted to be together on the, in, in the canoe. And by the end of the trip, they hated each other. They hated each other. It took them, like, six hours to get across. Everybody was at the other side waiting for hours. Um, and so it was hilarious. They, it was good that they didn't get married. So the trip was a success in some way. But here's the point. Here's the disciples. They're in the lake. They're actually only trying to go like three or four kilometers. It's not a really long distance. 
but John tells us they end up in the middle of the lake. They're, they've gone way, way, way off course. They've probably traveled about six and a half kilometers in the wrong direction by this point. Now they're in the middle of the sea. And they're just struggling against the wind, not making any headway. And Jesus sees them, and he knows. What time do you think that they left? Just reading the story. Yeah, they have dinner, and Jesus sends everybody away. Maybe 7 o'clock, maybe 8 o'clock. And he says that he went out to them at the fourth watch. So first watch is 6 to 9, second is 9 to 12, third is 12 to 3. So fourth watch is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Somewhere during that time, Jesus stops praying and goes out to them. And they have likely been struggling for seven, eight, nine, maybe ten hours rowing against the wind, not getting anywhere, on a trip that should take less than an hour. He is planning something. They have no clue. There's a statement here that says that Jesus was about to pass by them. And it's kind of perplexing. What does that mean? He was about to pass by them. The Greek reads, he wanted to pass before them. And so there's a few ideas of what this might mean. Uh, One is that Jesus kind of planned this to be a, a Christophany where he would just kind of be before them all of a sudden and they would see him and, and they'd recognize him. I don't know if that makes sense to me because I think Jesus kind of had it all planned out so he knew how it would transpire. Another idea is that rather than walking directly toward them, he was walking before them because he was showing. It was just this picture of he goes before you. And so he was before the boat in the waves. And so even though their way was difficult, they knew they were going toward and with Christ. Um, I think it's quite possible that this was just the way that this was perceived by the apostles. If we remember that Mark is writing these words based on the Apostle Peter's perspective, it's possible Peter just said, it looked like, it looked like this guy was just like walking past us. Like all of a sudden there's, there's a guy in the water and he's, he's just kind of walking past us. I, I don't know, but he was passing by them. Verse 49, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it had been a spirit and cried out, For they all saw him and were troubled. They don't see Jesus. They see a ghost. Now, I I want to say here, and I think that the, the, the following verses, they back me up. I want to say that Jesus was in a position where they should have seen him. They should have recognized him. Okay? Now, you could say, yeah, it's it's it's. Pitch blackout. I mean, it's the darkest time of the night, 3 a.m., and it's a storm, and who knows how close Jesus was to the boat. Maybe they just saw this and they thought it was a ghost. That's possible. But later on, we're going to find that their heart was hard. And if their heart was hard, and that connects to the story, I, I, I partly wonder, I mean, he said, for they all saw him. I wonder if they were supposed to recognize him. I wonder if there was something that, that though they were seeing him, it made more sense to them that they wouldn't even believe what their eyes were saying to their brain. Can't be Jesus. It must be a ghost, right? Because ghosts are real. Yeah, but John the Baptist did this. Uh, John the Baptist. Um, uh, Herod did the same thing. 
where he believed something that was absolutely absurd just because of his conscience. So I, I kind of think that sometimes we believe absurd things just because we won't see the truth that's right in front of us. Verse 49, sorry, verse 50, the second half of verse 50. And immediately he talked with them and said unto them, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. I, I like how disciples are confused. They don't know what's going on. They think it's a ghost. Jesus doesn't leave them there. He opens up his mouth and speaks. This is how our God acts toward us. When we don't know what's going on, we don't know who he is, and we don't recognize the situation in front of us, he opens his mouth and tells us. And so that's exactly what he does. Does He talked with them. He said to them, be of good cheer. Again, I think this is an absurd thing to say in this situation. Don't, don't be sad. Be of good cheer. Really, Jesus? Like, we've been on this lake for hours, and we're in a storm, and we're not making any headway, and we're not at all where we're supposed to go, and now we're, we're like eight hours in. We ha haven't slept yet tonight, and no idea how we're going to get to the position that you've told us to go to. But be of good cheer. How could they be of good cheer in this situation? It is I. And that's enough. It is I. So be not afraid. Because of Jesus, because of his presence, because he had sent them, because he was there, they didn't need to be afraid despite every circumstance being against them. I feel a little bit like a broken record saying this. Because honestly, as we've gone through the Gospels, this seems to be a reoccurring theme. That the circumstances often look bad. That from a human perspective, they have every reason to be afraid, to be sad, to be hopeless, to despair. And yet always, because of Jesus' presence there, there is reason to have hope. They don't have to be afraid. And it's never that he changes the circumstances right away. He always says this before he does anything. Matthew, the apostle, was there. And he wasn't going to miss the chance to tell the story of the day that Jesus walked on water, but, but Peter sunk. <laughs> and so he tells that story in his gospel, but Mark doesn't. And that's curious to me as well. I don't know why... Peter wouldn't have included that part, or maybe he did, and Mark just decided not to write about it. I don't know. But for some reason, Peter's walking on the water is recorded in Matthew, and so we're not going to deal with it. Okay? We're going to move on to verse 51 in Mark. It says, He went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased. And they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves for their heart, was hardened. And when they had passed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and drew to the shore. Jesus reveals himself to them. He tells them that there is no need to fear. He boards the ship and then the winds cease. I think it's a beautiful picture of Jesus getting into the ship of these guys. He actually boarded humanly, physically, boarded the boat with them. There's a portion of this text that has received a lot of attention uh, because it says that their hearts were hardened. It, and it's, why, like, why is that there? Why does Mark make the point that the disciples' hearts were hardened? And what was it that hardened their hearts? 
Um, in Matthew, when Jesus gets onto the ship and the winds cease, it says that they worshipped him as the Son of God. So they said he was a son. This is actually like one of the first times that they realize, there, there's been demons in the past that have said this, but this is the, the disciples realizing that this really is the Son of God. So their reaction to this event after the fact is positive. But the problem is their reaction during the event. That during the event, they were once again scared. During the event, they didn't recognize a Christ. During the event, they didn't see what was going on. And so Jesus had to say, you don't need to be afraid again. It is I. Right? We've been in this situation before. Do you remember when the disciples were last in a storm on the lake? That time Jesus was with them, right? And that time he fell asleep. And they woke him up. And do you remember what they said to him when they woke him up? Don't, Jesus, don't you care that we're dying? Like, it's a foregone conclusion. We are going to die, but we want you to care just a little bit, right? I mean, how much did they miss who Jesus was? And in this case, it's actually even more difficult because he sent them away. Now they don't get to see his presence. This sounds a little bit to me like Jesus is teaching them something. That, that he's gradually preparing them for something. Like, at first I'll be with you, but... It'll look maybe like I'm not aware. Now I'm not even with you, but you need to know that even though I'm not physically present with you, I am still aware. In fact, he's probably in the mountain praying for them at this time, watching them. His eyes are on them as they're toiling. And so he is preparing them for what's to come. But they, their hearts were hardened, and the reason that their hearts were hardened this is what Mark is telling us. The reason that their hearts were hardened is because they didn't remember the miracle of the loaves. In other words, they had just forgotten what Jesus had done. They forgot who he was. They forgot what he could do. <laughs> Most of the problems that we will experience in our Christian life are not because we've never read a passage on what we're going through, not because we've never heard a lesson taught on it. Not because we don't know what the true thing is. Most of the problems we will experience in our Christian life where we lack faith will just simply be a result of we're not remembering what Jesus has done. We don't remember what we've been taught. Right? It's been laid out for us and we have forgotten. This idea of remembering is essential in the Christian life. That's why the communion service is there. It keeps drawing us back to the most important thing to remember. And so they had forgotten what he had just that day before accomplished. And because of that, they couldn't even recognize his presence in that situation. There is an easy application to this story that the disciples were in the middle of a storm. Jesus went into their storm, joined it with them, that everything was all right in the end. And so if you are in the midst of a storm, Everything will be all right in the end because Jesus is in the boat. That's good. That's good. That's true. But I think there's more. Um, if you remember that Mark's goal with the gospel that he's writing 
is to provide a history of the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus so that people would believe on him and follow him. That's why he was writing. And so in some way, this story has to fit into that. He's doing something to show us who Jesus is and what he's come to accomplish so that we'll believe on him and follow him. I have to be honest here, as I've, as I've studied this passage and I've seen how the disciples reacted, how poorly they reacted, it's been encouraging for me. It's, it's so good to see them fail constantly. It just, it makes me feel better about myself. But I also want us to see the portrait that Mark is painting of who Jesus is. And so let's look at the disciples first. The first thing we see in the disciples in this story is discontented obedience. They're compelled to or constrained to enter in the ship. And so, though they might not really want to, they obey. Right? Now, this is both a problem and it's commendable. Right? I mean, it's too bad that they weren't excited to do what Jesus wanted them to do, but at least they did it. They were being obedient. Um, in the second thing we see with the disciples is that they are engaged in useless effort, battling circumstances that are out of their control. So they obeyed. They don't, weren't really sure they wanted to, and now they find themselves toiling struggling, engaged in useless effort because they're in a circumstance that is way beyond their control. They can't control the wind. They can't control the the waves. They can't control the direction of the boat. All they're doing is the same thing over and over again until their arms feel like they're going to fall off because they've got nothing else they can do. The third thing we see is that they're unable to recognize the presence of Jesus even when he is standing in front of them. I think this is where the hardness of heart comes in. I wonder if you can identify with them. I wonder if at times our obedience is less than joyful. It might be there, but it's we were compelled, constrained. It's okay. Paul said the love of Christ constrained him. That he did some things he didn't want to do because, because of his understanding of God's love. It's okay to be compelled to do something by Jesus. But I wonder if you've ever been there. I wonder if you've ever found that obedience to Christ brought difficulty. That there was some sorrow and pain involved. That you felt like you were struggling and toiling, but nothing ever changed. The most difficult thing about ministry, and I'm talking about as a pastor, I'm also talking about anybody who's ever engaged in ministry, is the apparent lack of fruit. It's the discouragement. It's the toil and work and struggle and feel like nothing is ever being accomplished. And you know what? Like, even if other people were to step back and look at your ministry and say, no, 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 you're doing well. Like, there's a lot of parents, I think, that feel this way, that they've they've been toiling and struggling with their kids and there's just no benefit. And, and other people can look back and they can say, no, like you've made some strides. There's some really good things happening. But just from your vantage point, it feels like you're working 
And, and it's so easy just to get focused on the things that aren't going well that we always feel like we're struggling and toiling and nothing's ever happening. This is exactly where they are. And I wonder if you can identify with them struggling to see Jesus in the storm. That they didn't see his presence. They didn't understand his plan. They didn't get it. They didn't understand why Jesus would send away 5,000 people he just fed, then leave them to go to pray. I don't even know if they knew that's what he was going to do. And why he would put them in a boat that would cause them to be in the middle of the storm, you know, rowing for eight hours. I think I can identify with them. But here is what Mark wants us to see about Jesus. And I think this is, these are lessons that Jesus is teaching them. So he sends the disciples across the sea in a ship. He is directing the apostles toward the storm. The storm wasn't an accident. One of the things I think Mark wants us to see is that Jesus put them in the storm. It was all planned. We had a youth activity on Friday, and we were talking about Paul and his journey to Rome. He finally, he wanted to go to Rome. He didn't, I don't know if he wanted to go to Rome as a prisoner, but he finally did get to be taken to Rome as a prisoner. And along route, they kept coming into one difficulty after another and one delay after another. And it finally meant that they were going to have to port at this place called Fair Haven that was actually a terrible haven. It wasn't fair at all. And so nobody wanted to stay there because it, nobody wants to stay in this terrible port. And so they said, let's get, get to Phoenix. We'll make it across and we'll be okay. Then we get to stay in this really nice place. And Paul said, I don't know if it's a good idea. They let him, they decided, no, Paul, we're just going to go anyway. And so along route, what happens? Well, the ship is wrecked and everybody is saved, but the whole ship is destroyed. And so we were talking afterward with the teenagers about lessons, and Rachel asked them this question. Rachel Dion said, do you think that the soldiers and the criminals would have been better off if they would have stayed in Fairhaven? Would have been better if they never got in, right? Because it's a miracle that they were saved from the storm eventually. But would it have been better if they just didn't leave? Well, what, what's the answer to that question? No, absolutely not. They got to go into that situation and they got to see God's saving power. They heard from Paul that God had sent an angel to tell him that, that they would be saved. They saw that every single time that they tried to do something, their plans failed, but God's plan was always secure. It was always safe. It did exactly what he said would happen. And so they, they had this opportunity to learn from Paul and hear the gospel and so many good things. Why? Because they went through this awful circumstance. That circumstance was so terrible that for 14 days, 275 men had all hope lost. We are dying for sure. And God put them there for a reason. And so Mark helps us see a Jesus who would send us into a storm because he's got something really valuable for us to learn. He shows us a Jesus who, while we are in the storm, is up on a mountaintop probably praying for us. And I say probably, I, I feel like you'd have a hard time arguing that's not what Jesus was praying for when he went into this mountain, as he's watching them struggle. 
Okay? We do know we have a high priest who is uh, um, our advocate with the Father, is praying for us on our behalf all the time. We see a Jesus who then shows up at just the right time. Not their time, not the time they wanted him to come, but the time that he knew was best. And as he shows up, what does he do? He reveals himself to be God. That's what he's doing here. Okay? So don't miss that part. This is, what he, this is what he does. He walks on water. Job chapter 9 verse 8 says, Which alone, speaking of God, so God alone spreads out the heavens and treads upon the waves of the sea. God is the one who walks on water. So the first thing he does is says, look at guys, I am God, I will walk upon the water. The second thing he does is he says, don't be, don't be afraid, right? Well, this is the language that God uses all the time. Why not be afraid? Because I'm there. Joshua chapter 1 verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee. Don't be afraid. Why not? God is with you. Jeremiah 1.8, Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, and, and there's many other references we could go to, but Isaiah 40, verse 9, O Jerusalem that brings good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. You can lift up your voices with strength. Why? Because of who your God is. And so he walks on water. He says, don't be afraid. And then he says, it is I. You know what that phrase is? I am. I am. That's it. Don't even be afraid. Why? The I am is here. There is only one whose name is enough to breathe hope into the most impossible circumstances that we'll face. Only one. It's the I am. And so Jesus is teaching them this wonderful lesson that they need to learn. They need to be 100% assured of this because they will die for this truth. And that is that Jesus Christ is God. After he reveals who he is, he walks up to the ship, he boards it, and the wind ceases. It's like, okay, lesson over. Okay, we're done. In fact, when John says it, he says, and all of a sudden they were there. It was like somehow they just arrived at their destination. Jesus was doing this. He was doing this all along. Don't, don't, I mean, it's so easy to look at this story and say, God works. You know, you can trust him in the storm. And it's so, so easy even to look back at our lives and say, this is how God does this. But isn't it more difficult in, in our everyday life today to see him working? Today to recognize his presence? But he's here and he is still working. Here's what Kent Hughes said. Jesus came into the darkest part of the night when they had exhausted all their energies and were in deepest despair. This is how he often comes to us, that we might learn the futility of our own strength and depend upon him. Maybe it's possible that he let them wait for so long because up until hour number eight, they still had a little bit of strength left on their own. 
He, he wanted it to be gone. He wanted the full despair. At least the full dependence, right? I mean, I don't even know if we have to despair if we depend, as long as it's not on ourselves. He said the very waves that distressed them became a path for his feet. So transcending was his power. His feet upon the waves bespoke his familiarity with their plight. In other words, he knew exactly what they were going through. He was walking on it. He knew their struggle. And he came to them. And then he says, he not only sees, but enters the human struggle. This is a pretty awesome Jesus. The pretty awesome king we get to serve. And so as we look at this text, hey, let's be honest with ourselves. We identify with disciples that struggle to obey and sometimes do, you know, maybe not joyfully, but, but we try. We sometimes find ourselves in situations where we're toiling and seeing no harvest, where nothing seems to be happening. And there are times in our storms where we feel unable to sense or to see the presence of Christ. We identify with them. But look at who our Jesus is. The one that comes to us on the storm. The one that put us in the storm in the first place. And the one that's showing us in the storm that he truly is God. That he can be fully dependent on in every circumstance. That we can be not afraid even before the winds cease because he is the I am. There's a song that I think Mercy Me sings. And it talks about, um, he's, 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 the chorus is a prayer. And the prayer is, God, bring me joy, bring me peace, bring the chance to be free, bring me anything that brings you glory. I know there will be days when lo- this life brings me pain, but if that's what it takes to praise you, Jesus, bring the rain. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's good. It's good to understand that there will be times in our lives where what it takes for us to see more of Christ is the storm. And so if that's the case, Jesus, bring the storm. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the story, Lord. We, um, we see the awesome power of Christ as he steps out onto water. We see his deity um, so clearly in this story. We see his compassion and his love for the disciples. And we also see his willingness to let them suffer until um, they were in a position to learn the lesson that he had for them. And so God, I pray that we would just see the way that he treats his disciples and recognize he's doing the same thing in our lives today. That you are putting us in situations that are difficult, that we can't handle on our own to show us that we need to depend on you. That you are there in our struggle with us and that you can be fully trusted. Lord, if there's a person here tonight that doesn't recognize um, that Jesus is God, that he came on a mission to save the world, Lord, I pray that they would, they would desire to know that. I, I pray that they would um, ask questions and um, just get to know the one that came to us when there was no hope. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.